Hello and welcome back to Tabling the Podcast. My name is Ariana Karp and I'm here with a fantastic group of actors and a director who is going to take us through their process of exploring the difficult, verbose, and um, very fun Love's Labor's Lost, which you can catch on Radio Shakespeare Lab, our sister podcast. Um, so I would love it if we could go around and say our names, our preferred pronouns, um, where you are, because uh, that's always fun to know, um, who you played in this radio production of Love's Labor's Loss. And prior to this process, what was your relationship to this play? Had you seen a really great production? Did you read it in school? Did it frustrate you? Do you love it? Have you always loved it? Have you directed it multiple times, <laughs> Bronwyn? Um, whatever that uh, that is. So um, Bronwyn, let's start with you. And if you want to sort of guide us through the room, that would be wonderful. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so my name is Bronwyn Barnwell. I uh, am currently based in Austin, Texas. My pronouns are she, her, hers. Um, I directed this lovely production um, and I uh, have, I've directed this, or I've assistant directed it once and directed it twice. Um, and uh, so I've like, like uh, my college professor told me, I don't try new things. Um, so I am uh, very, very familiar with the play, but uh, prior to this production, um, I had done it in, you know, situations where we were on stage and, and I really got to fully choose my cast, like my absolute just kind of dream cast of people that I've worked with over the course of, I think, 12 years for some people. So it was really exciting to have a mix of three different countries um, and different time zones and, and getting everyone not in the same room. <laughs> actually quite quite an artificial space of me and my brain for six months so um that uh but it's been I, I and I love this play I didn't know this play before I first directed it I didn't think I could get anything else out of it and I was so wrong I'm still finding things every day it's great and I will pass it on to uh Charlie Morton who's below me Hello. Um, yes, I'm Charlie Morton. Uh, he, him. I'm in Stratford-upon-Avon. You might have heard of it. Um, and I'm playing uh, Holofernes, the weird Latin guy. Um, <laughs> one of the many. Um, I've appeared uh, in this play twice before. Um, once as Longueville in 2012, and in Bronwyn's production in Stratford, whenever that was, 2018, yeah, as uh, the King uh, of Navarre, um, which someone pointed out is a very, very small uh, area of land. Um, <laughs> I've, uh, yeah, and, and both times I've done it kind of on stage, the the relationship between the lords has been one of the most kind of unifying things I've had on stage with the, the other lords and kind of the relationship you build up with them over rehearsals and uh, then on stage, especially when one of them throws a book at my mother. Um, <laughs> um, 
it's yeah, it's a play that. So I know it quite well. Uh, yeah, and Hall of Furnace, um, both people I've seen playing it, John uh, Curtis and Lucia, were quite uh, unique performers. Um, and so Hall of Furnace has always struck me as quite a strange character in kind of the way that the play fits together. Um, yeah, not my favourite comedy, but <laughs> beautiful language and uh, just the construction of it always gets me as... Um, uh, yeah, exception. Preston. Hello. My name is Preston Perrin. Um, I'm coming live currently from the highway from uh, Texas back to my My preferred pronouns are he and his. I played Longaville as production. And my prior experience with this show um, I saw a production of it back in college, and I absolutely hated it. Um, I think it was just the direction overall. It's just very muddy and very confusing. So watching that as the college student, um, I wanted so much art, so much here at that time, and I experienced uh, production. So after seeing it, I was like, wow, that show was horrible, um, and I never want to do it again. But then when Bromwyn um, approached about doing the show, I was ecstatic because it was a chance to kind of like reclaim what I kind of make it my own and, and just the direction I had brawl. So I had such a wonderful experience now have fun. We can only assume that just a deep love of the play, <laughs> um, I'm sure, is the way that uh, that sentence ended. Thank you, Preston. Uh, uh, Lee, would you like to go next? Hi, uh, my name is Lee Vineyard, he, him. Um, I played uh, Lord and the Forester and Markety in this production. This was... Um, also, my third time uh, acting in Love's Labor's Lost. Uh, the first time I did it was uh, as a teenager. I played the princess, and that was the last play I did before taking sort of an unintentional break from theater in between graduating high school and starting college in a, a STEM program for a while. Uh, so it certainly left an impression being the last one for a while. And then the, the second time I was in Love's Labors was um, as an adult. And this was the production that Bronwyn AD'd and I got to play Moth. Um, I sort of, uh, yeah, for a long time, I've had sort of a deep affection for this play because of those positive experiences. And it's really all about the language for me with this one and just so many characters in this play are clever and enjoy playing with words uh, so you have just some really lovely uh, verse to to say and to get into and it's I find it to be very sticky language as well it sticks in your head um, and just there's something so fun about hearing those rhymes the constant <laughs> rhymes <laughs> set up and fulfilled I had a great time doing this again Awesome. Um, Alexander? Hello, I'm Alexander Wishore. I play Boyette in this production of Love's Labour's Lost. Uh, my pronouns are he, him, his. 
Um, I, yeah, my previous experience of this play was purely, I, I found, <laughs> I was looking around for speeches for Shakespeare for like drama school auditions. Um, and I came across the Boyette one and just really fell in love with the way that he speaks. It's very playful, um, very descriptive. And I just, I just like the, the wordplay and just the general language. Um, so that was my only experience. And then I, I read the play and I didn't understand it. I didn't understand any of the language. It just completely went over my head. Um, and then Bronwyn asked me to be a part of this production and yeah, reprising Boyette um, again, but actually in a production, like a full production. Um, and yeah, like she broke it down really well. And we just had so much fun, both in the full cast like read through and then also just working on it individually with Bronwyn um, I was able to understand a little bit more about the character and a lot of, <laughs> a lot about pieces of Boyette's speech that I missed before um, because obviously we went through it and I was like oh that's okay that's what that means um, so yeah that's my experience of the play and my experience to date and um, yeah thank you and last but not least Ian oh um, yes, I'm Ian Gould, uh, he, him. I am coming to you from New York City and I play Custard. Um, I, um, see, I have never worked on this play before um, in any capacity. I, um, you know, I'd, I'd read it, I knew it. I'd, I've seen several productions that are sort of all over the, um, sort of, you know, all, all over the place uh, results-wise. I've seen good productions, I've seen bad productions, I've seen fair productions. Um, but, uh, but I've never worked on it. I've never, um, um, and I don't, you know, and, and Custard for me was a really, uh, was a really wonderful kind of undiscovered role because I, you know, I, I knew of him, but I don't honestly remember much about him in any of the productions that I've seen. So I had to, um, so I had to, so I really got to kind of investigate who this guy was, um, having never met him really before. And, um, you know, I think it's a, I think it's a really, really hard play. I think it's the, I actually think it's, it's maybe um, the hardest play to perform, certainly the hardest comedy. Um, I think between this and, and Troilus and Cressida are kind of where the, are, are like the, the most difficult language to put over. Um, um, at least for us now. And I, I, I imagine it was actually really difficult at the time. I don't think this play was ever easy for anyone, um, but it is so dazzlingly uh, written and so packed with stuff that um, it was really, it was, it, was, it was great fun. It was great fun to work on. I, I, I only wish I could have been in a room with, with all of you people while we were doing it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, but I had a blast. Fantastic. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, I, that is something I, I would love to talk about. I, Bronwyn, you seem so drawn to the particularly difficult <laughs> comedies. Like, I, I think to say something screams imposter syndrome <laughs> about my two favorite plays. Like, I have to prove myself by choosing the two most difficult, two most difficult comedies. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I guess, yeah, technically Troilus and Crescent is, isn't it? Well, is it categorized as a, it's a categorized as a, we, who, know? who knows? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> One of those. 
<laughs> I feel like it might in the folio be under tragedy, but yeah. um, I think most other classifications usually um, put it or something. It's like actually that. funny story. You want to you want to know the, the the story of the folio? Oh so, please. Uh, yeah. So Troyes and Cressida. <clears throat> let me just switch hats for a minute here. Um, Troyes and Cressida was they had trouble getting the right to print it because they were owned by um, by somebody, they were owned by somebody else. They did not have the right to print the things. So for a long time, it was looking like they were not going to be able to include it in the folio, as far as anybody knows. And then they straightened it out. They got permission. They wedged it in there, but the table of contents had already been printed. So it's actually not in the table of contents. Um, it's actually, and some people theorize, um, there's a great book by Emma Smith about this, that um, they were not going to print Simon of Athens um, because they either, you know, because some people think it's, it wasn't finished and they never actually performed it, so they were going to leave it out, but they shoved it in there when it became clear that it looked like we can't, we, we, we're not going to get Troilus and we have like this, we're going to have this empty space because of the way they printed books back then. They couldn't, they had to already predict how many pages they needed. So they were like, we need to put something in here because we're already in mid-production and otherwise we're just going to have like 12 pages. So we're like, we'll put in time in. And then they got permission to do Troilus and then they wedged uh, Troilus in there. So people fight over where it belongs because actually they never made a decision that it's not in the table of contents in the folio. So we don't know where they would have categorized it. Brilliant. I love yeah. that. I love that. Truly unclassified. Um, <laughs> and this one, this one uh, absolutely leaps out of its, uh, the norms of its classification. Um, you know, it doesn't, it has a death on the, at the end, uh, an off screen death, but notably the most powerful person in the story has passed uh, and elevates another one. Um, and there are no, there are no, no weddings. Marriage. Yeah. Um, which would a, classify it as a tragedy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, and so, which uh, is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a lovely promise made between, you know, the country made and <laughs> the Spaniard, uh, for three years at least, but, um, yeah, no, no, no marriages. And, uh, so that's, I think that's why I love this. Well, one of the multitude of reasons I'm obsessed with this play, but I think just because it's, it's so damn difficult, like no yeah. part of it's easy, not a single part. If, if you had to pull all of Shakespeare's like odd extra B plot characters, like these are by far just some of the weirdest, <laughs> um, just like excruciatingly uh dense language characters and um yeah do you do you want me to kind of chat about our process a little yeah, bit yeah absolutely I mean I, I would really love to sort of delve in so like for one like what is it about this play you've sort of gone into it but what was your kind of I always think of the director is like choosing the lens through which to look at the play. So kind of what was your lens? What was your, your focal point? If you were to sort of like distill that down, what was, what's your in to this play and sort of how did that manifest in, in the process of working on it? That's very interesting. Um, <laughs> as a director, I wish I had a very uh, clear answer about that. I think the way that I, enter this play is obviously 
the language, but what's so great about getting to do this play once you've done it twice on stage and in both highly academic situations, I might add, like, you know, both with a, a good group of scholars both times. So I very much felt comfortable with the language at this point, but I didn't feel comfortable about being able to convey what it meant without superfluous fluff. And that's something that I think that, you know, in both of the productions I've done, you heavily rely on. I mean, how else are you supposed to convey to an audience what you're talking about when the metaphor potentially died in Shakespeare's day and age? <laughs> like it's it's very difficult. And so to take it and say like, I okay, I have to convey this message just with speech. How do we, you know, cut the text? How do we um, go, go through the meaning and kind of show the patterns? So Beautiful I think that cuts, that was- By the way, really, <laughs> it was fun. Like going through listening with the script and going oh oh good cut like <laughs> this is really it's really masterfully done um oh, i just wanted you. to put that in there oh ah oh, blessings yes excellent thank you that's a very big compliment it is a conglomeration of um many trials and errors of, of cutting it before so um yeah i think that I, what I love about this play is the the repetition of language, and I think that that's kind of where I entered it. I've done a lot of talking about um, the word fair before this. This production has like 60, 70 odd mentions of the word fair uh, in it, and that might be very common, but it's just like a currency in this play. And so um, I was really focused on showing the way that each character kind of like takes in language and gives it back out. Like I have like little names for all of the characters based on the way that they handle language. Um, so that's kind of the way I was looking at it. And I really wanted just a really big range of voices. Um, that's why there's notably like no double casting apart from Lee. Um, and you know, he has like the smallest like kind of people that kind of come up in different scenes. So it's not a confusing situation, but we've got, um, you know, just like all of all of these ranges of voices and I don't think anyone sounds the same. So it's really exciting to have that when you've got like four distinct um, men and four distinct women and, you know, they're all kind of pairing up at, ra at random. My favorite detail about this is that, you know, like for Longueville and Dumaine and Mariah and Catherine, they speak to each other for the first time when they say goodbye. I mean, that's just, this is ridiculous. Come on. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think I've rambled for a while um, and not really said anything, but uh, yes, that's. I will open it up to the to the cast and just um, were there any sort of really revelatory character discoveries that came up as you were working through some of this rather dense language? I mean, I I was astonished by the rhyming and how much like I cannot think of another play that is so reliant on rhyme as a as a yeah, form of exchange. You know? It's like 66% rhyming verse. Yeah. And I think it's because this is this is like Shakespeare's one play that's like completely his brainchild. Like he has no other ex, you know, it's just like everything he wanted to do, he got to do for better yeah. or for worse. Mm -hmm. um, and also for like Lee and Charlie, since y'all have been in this before, like please feel free to speak on more than 
you know, Lee, you can talk about the princess and the moth. We don't have them represented here. So, uh, and Charlie the King. And uh, we do have a long of elves. You and Preston can fight over, the, or over that. <laughs> um, but, um, and I just, sorry, I'm so sorry. But just quickly, I forgot to talk about the process. It was a, a weird process uh, because mm. everyone, because I wanted such a, like a big range of people. I have an, an 18 person cast. That was what I was trying to get to. And I forgot my train of thought. Thank you. Ah. Um, <laughs> But because of that, scheduling was so difficult. And because I wanted very particular people, I had to deal with the fact that everyone was very busy. Some of these people are, you know, like running around, everyone has jobs, whatnot. Um, but uh, we couldn't all get in the same space, not even in small groups. We tried, we tried, it was a valiant effort, but no. Uh, so everything had to be individually recorded. So I sat down with each person one to four times and, uh, recorded audio and then uh, I, I Frankenstein it all together. So it's it was quite a, um, it felt very like fun and creative in between, like in each of the one-on-ones, like I, I hope for everyone, but uh, in terms of the process itself, quite an artificial construction um, on, on my part, very heavily, I would say very heavily directed of um, me actually like constructing it all and, um, and the lovely Preston who played uh, Longville, he helped level out some stuff at the end and um, and kind of was there to consistently listen to, I think he's the only person who's listened to the entire thing and and the whole way would be like, it's, yo, you're doing great. It sounds good. Uh, there's a beep here and you know, you're doing great. And so um, bless, blessings upon him. Okay, I will let the cast speak now, sorry. Well, wonderful. So then that that actually uh, transitions quite quite nicely into sort of what it was like on this process, because I was gonna, I was kind of gonna ask like, so how did you, you, the character relationships develop? And like that, that is a totally, totally different, um, totally different question for a different production, I guess. Uh, but, but what were yeah, what were some of the, I'm, I'm always curious, like, were there any really surprising moments in these sessions of like, oh, whoa, okay, that connects to that. And, oh, that explains this or, or and any, any, mo any aha moments that were particularly memorable for you um, to do specifically with, with character work and character discoveries, but anything that, that crosses your mind. Everyone's like, nope. Well, you know, it's, it's, um, it's interesting that the, um, it really, I mean, having listened to it, it, it really is amazing how the recording really does sound like we're in the same space at the same time. <laughs> um, and, um, um, you know, when, when we were not, but uh, it was much more, the, the process for me was, was more, actually reminded me more of the process of doing something on film, um, which, it, because, you know, when I'm, uh, you know, when I'm on stage in a given performance, I am, you know, I, I am in control of that performance. This is the performance that I am giving that you are seeing tonight. Um, and I felt like the best way to approach this, though, is to, um, uh, is to give Bronwyn options and then, and to have different takes of the same sort of material. So we did the same thing kind of different ways and all kinds of stuff. And then, um, and then I didn't, get to know like which performance I gave until I listened to the thing at the at the end um but um 
Um, so that was really, so that was, you know, that's much more like what I remember, you know, of the, of the fairly limited amount of film work that I've done, but it's, it's that about, it's about, you know, giving the director and the editor choices to make, and then they, you know, sort of choose which performance you give. Um, um, but in terms of character stuff, it's, you know, I, I've done a number of, there's, there's one kind of comic character type that's missing, I think, from this play. Um, which is the, uh, you know, the, that's in most of his other comedies, which is the one who's a little slow on the uptake. Um, this play doesn't have the one who was always, who's really slow on the uptake. Everybody's really, really, really sharp all the time. Um, um, with, with, a, with some, with some potential, with some possible exceptions, but everybody's really, you know, everybody's really, um, um, you know, you don't have the, uh, you know, the, the Sarandu cheek of this play, who's always sort of always a beat behind um, um, or any, you know, so it was, it was really interesting playing a character um, like, you know, like Coster, the, the country swain um, and in, a, you know, um, but the country swain who's really, really, really clever and loves words and loves talking and loves you know, and is just as, um, and is just as sharp as all of the educated university wits in the other scene. Um, was a, it was a, it, you know, I've done a, a number of the comedies, and it was a, it was a neat, um, uh, it, it was it was a neat change of pace to, um, you know, to have to have a play where everybody's, um, you know, everybody's really quick on the draw, all the time. Um, and and the challenge of that, which is different than the challenge of you know being a being a beat behind, you know the the challenge of of getting everything going at the, um, you know everything progressing at a really good clip, without getting too fast to be comprehended or slowing down and being you know and and letting it sort of get away from you. Um, that was a that was a really that was really fun. Wonderful. Yeah, it seems like this play requires like just a, a huge amount of focus and energy um, in order to and, and, and some of that, I mean, I, this is this is a testament to your editing skills, Bronwyn, but some of the, the really quick exchanges like the rhythm, you're so dependent on the rhythm of those back and forth, back and forth. Um, I, I am I am very curious about uh, Coster simply because he talks back to everyone, including the king, you know, like, who is this guy who's just like, oh, no, 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 I have such a, no, you've got to listen to, I've got such a good thing for this, you know, and just, there, the threat of punishment, which is so kind of laid on quite thick in the first couple scenes, just totally kind of disappears when you get into Act 2, and I'm yeah. just, I, it is, it is a funny place, you know, like it, 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 it reminds me of, of in Monty Python, they're like, no, let's not go to Camelot. It is a silly place. Like this, this place is a silly place. And I, that, it, it doesn't have the sort of let's retreat to the woods kind of feel. It's like, we're already in this, the place where silly things happen. Um, and so that, that, that's another curiosity about this, this play that 
was interesting to me as well. Yeah, Navarre, Navarre just, I think, from the first speech that the king has is established as a mildly silly place. Just like, <laughs> I don't know why the line, and it's always Charlie's voice that's stuck in my head of when you say, Navarre will be a little academe. <laughs> you know, just like, it's the way that, and I think it's one of the greater themes in the play too, is how much levity should be put on scholarship or the pursuit of knowledge like how much does knowledge uh then result in smarts because yeah. it doesn't seem to like Holofernes who is the person who has studied the most no one really comprehends what he's saying um and on the other end of that Costard who's supposed to be this bumbling fool is soaking up knowledge constantly um, like in my catarig, cater- oh my gosh, I can't speak. Catarig. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, I'll just move on from that word. Oh, whatever <laughs> word I'm trying to say. Category, but if you put an ization at the end, um, uh, he's he's the learner, whereas you know Holofernes is the lister, and mm. just speaks and lists and lists and lists until something hits right. He's got so much that he can list off. And it's normally just finally when he gets to the end and is like, you know, like yeah. it's just um, <laughs> that people can understand. But um, yeah, and and I agree. And most of the characters are definitely on point. It's, it's funny you use the word sharp, though. There is a character called Dull who uh, <laughs> has not very many lines, though. That's the thing. He's not as present as uh, Andrew Aguicheek and... The others I think he's a much smaller role in this play and he's like the blueprint for um Dogberry um and he so he might def- he, he might he might be the one who is a beat behind that's right yeah yeah yeah. but but still he he tries to test people he's completely unaware of it. <laughs> he's like well I you you know and he uh he's yeah completely unaware but he has like seven lines so he mm-hmm. doesn't shine very much as he is dull. Um. <laughs> um, and and that that also seems to me that this play is so much about almost this, you know, it's one of the many plays now I'm realizing in Shakespeare that have scenes where something theatrical happens, right? Like we've got we've got Hamlet, we've got taming of the shrew in this strange frame device narrative um we've we've got midsummer night's dream we have these these plays within plays but to me it also brought up this idea that they're performing being scholars right they're not actually being scholars they're performing ah yes i will fast and i'll do this and that will make me a scholar it's like no that's that's not <laughs> that isn't quite it so and there's so many doubles to me in this play and, and mirrors. And I, I'm particularly interested because we get such a tiny bit of it of, um, I never know how to pronounce, Holofernes? Holofernes? Holofernes. Holofernes. And Don Armado to me seem to be such similar characters and they, they get on each other's nerves. And I love that about, <laughs> about those two characters. But there, yeah, just what, I guess it gets to a, a performative question of sort of how consciously 
because this is such a play about language and sharing language and using language almost as a as a weapon to have you know fencing fights you know how conscious are they performing at all times in this kind of strange meta way charlie do you want to talk about that having played the king and Holofernes, two people that are one that kind of struggles with language and someone has to take over for him kind of constantly and the other one that again is totally incomprehensible yeah well and i guess it kind of links to the way we did it and, and it being on radio is that the focus then becomes so much on the language when we did it um the Bromwin production um there were so many little physical jokes like having posters of no women all around the place that we were <laughs> ripping up um but yeah but because of doing it on uh, just being able to use the voice to do it. the 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 cricket and the the bits where Holofernes gets into rhyming and kind of carried away with himself and it's, it's performing. I don't know if you know the play um, Tom Stoppard's Dogs Hamlet Cahoots Macbeth, but there's in that um, dog kind of casts himself in the school play. Well, when we did it, I kind of had him as the headmaster at a school who casts himself as Claudius and Polonius um, and it's that kind of when he gets there at the end and decides to play all the other roles that other people and uh, yeah Judas I Am was was a lot of fun to play with um, yeah. um, and when I was the king it, it's I tend to do it when I play authority figures I played Orsino um, as well. I just tend to make them as stupid as possible um, I think uh, we added in one <laughs> to Bronwyn's one where I tried to run out of a locked door and had to um, do a I can't see you, you can't see me exit to avoid <laughs> breaking the law. Um, yeah, it's the, the <laughs> um, kind of rambling. But yeah, that it, we, even though we were all kind of in isolation, we still got to have that kind of rehearsal joy and the and the stupid jokes and there were it was also yeah just ran it with with Bronwyn and what seemed like the middle of the night her time um there were just sometimes where I was and I've yeah seen this play quite a lot and I was reading out the lines and she's like yeah very good um you've got the the word wrong there <laughs> no I didn't read it back yeah, no, that is a different word to what I've read every time. Uh, I can't remember any specific examples, but yeah, that, um, it, yeah. That was, <laughs> Should be that a word was kind of, that was a consistent thing though, Charlie, for like everyone though, and oh, I do it too. And I, I've always done that reading out loud. Um, and I consistently shove words in there that just are not there. Uh, and the other person who did it quite a lot was Will, who played the king in this. And that was what you said is absolutely accurate. Like, uh, especially, I think the authority figures in this play are, I mean, the male authority fi figures. I mean, <laughs> and I want Lee to talk about the princess after this, but um, they, they are dumb. You know, like I and I would put if we're going back to what Ian said, if we're doing that classification of the comedic characters, um, I would actually put Barone as the fool of this play. He's, you know, 
he is is the one that kind of narrates for the audience just how silly what's happening on stage is and yet he's still part of it he's moving the engine forward and what's cool about this fool is that he also gets to be romantic which you never see and or i mean you see like vague pangings of it sometimes but it doesn't come to fruition. well this one okay never mind this one doesn't come to fruition either but it's a little bit more fully realized but i i think what's great about having the fool be the person that narrates the majority of the play i mean he's got like 500 odd lines um is that it has a very it has like a lens of sarcasm to the entire thing like the pursuit of love is and the pursuit of knowledge is kind of in vain in some ways and um which i think is great and he talks about uh vanity and um you know necessity and all of these things and he gives these amazing speeches on them um and then yeah you've got costard who's kind of in the traditional clown thing but he's again smarter than a lot of people take take him for uh and then i would say the smartest people in this whole play and this is why i love it are ladies and Lee, would you like to talk more about the princess? Sure, yeah, I can talk about the princess. And then Alexander <laughs> weigh in on Boyette because Boyette also moves mm. with the princess. Absolutely. Yeah, I, it's not a, one of the things I was preparing to talk about today, but <laughs> um, let me think back some eight years to when I was Don't 16. Don't act like it's too hard. You would finish all of the quotes for me when I brought them up. <laughs> it's true enough. I would. <laughs> because it sticks in there. I do love the princess and all of the, the ladies in this play. Sorry if you can hear my cat in the background. She's mad at me for being away yesterday. <laughs> I, I do. I love that um, the women in this play are political figures. Um, they're here on business. They're interested in doing business um, and they certainly seem to be better at statecraft than any of the men in the play. And I love that also, like most characters in the play, they are very clever and they use their cleverness and their um, bantering, but I think they use it in a way that I think is very positive. Um, one of the most sort of memorable parts of this play for me is when, um, Catherine mentions her sister who's died of love, uh, apparently. And Rosaline engages in this bit of um, rhyming, quibbling banter with her in a way that sort of draws her out of that sadness that she's feeling. And the, the way that they, they gently play with each other and rib each other uh, that brings her out of feeling very sad to feeling maybe still sad, but supported and part of the group. I think that's just a lovely um, dynamic that uh, this group of people has where they use their cleverness, not only um, in sort of a, a way to prove yourself smarter than other people, but in a way that builds community and uh, you know, is supportive of other people. Um, and then, of course, the, maybe the big thing with the princess is you get that big switch at the end, um, a moment I got to see from the other end this time around with 
are we afraid of spoiling things or is that allowed? Oh, um, <laughs> at the sort of the very end of the play, um, right after the play within the play, that's just uh, the height of comedy in, in the play. You get the messenger Marquis coming in to say that the princess's father, the king, who has been sick, and that was sort of established early on that she's there because her father's sick, uh, that the king has died. And he actually, he doesn't even say that the king has died. He says, the king, your father, and she finishes the sentence, dead for my life, which is both um, uh, both a sense of, oh, she she could tell so early. And also there's a bit of a double meaning, I think, in that for my life. Um, you are here to inform me that my life is changing. My life is no longer my own. Um, my life is for my country now. And the sense of uh, monarchy as a role of service to the, uh, the country. It's, a, it's an interesting role. It's a, I think a very cool character. Um, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll just weigh in quickly about what, you know, I, I call her the spitter because she takes what people say and then she spits it back in their face. And mm. Lee and I have chatted about that a lot before, but kind of the idea that the king kind of just like wanders into every room and he's like, fair lady. And she's like, fair, I give you back again, you know? And just like, oh, undercuts him at every turn, um, which is different than the way that Rosaline interacts with language, she twists it. Um, so you've got someone that takes language and puts it back out again and it like right in someone's face as as the meaning that it has been mm. processed, right? Like, did and you realize what you just said? Let's exactly. talk about that more versus a different versus, angle on it. Yeah. So yeah, uh, Rosaline use, using it as using the double meanings always. Uh, when she interacts with her own. So it's really interesting. And then we've got Boyette. Sorry to point out here, uh, Alexander, but, you know, he's a mimic. So the, you know, the princess will say, um, you know, say scout, say, and he'll say arm when she's arm. So he'll follow patterns, um, which is really great. And I'll let Alexander kind of talk more about his experience with that character. But I love Boyette because he is kind of, he is the ultimate kind of go between the, the panderer and all of this. And um, he is able to fit into the ladies group, but also is able to fit into the Lord's group. Right. So he kind of wears multiple coats and can do that uh, like a little chameleon. Yeah. But thanks Bruno. And then it was really interesting what you said about the mimic um, situation. Cause it was, uh, time during re <laughs> during the process of recording this, um, where because we're yeah we're recording this in isolation, obviously, um, and my character does have some of these mimicking um, tendencies, uh, and sometimes I guess we wouldn't have had the recording from the other cast members to know exactly how they would say it, so I could come in as you know as a mimic almost, because I think it's really interesting that Boyette uses that as a function, and I feel in the princess's court, it almost helps him 
gain that acceptance in a way that the men in the other court don't get that acceptance because um, Boya is quite savvy that way. Uh, but it, there was a process, there was a, a time, I think it's a princess's line. Um, Lee maybe uh, could correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's that thou canst not hit it, hit it, hit it, thou canst not hit it, my good man. I think that's um, Rosaline, yeah. Oh, Okay, yeah, my bad. Um, yes, yeah, so Rosaline says that line, and um, I think Rosaline in the process hadn't recorded that line yet. Um, and obviously, I offered up my <laughs> my my unique offering of what that could be, um, <laughs> and then I think Rosaline came to record it, and we play. I think Ros uh, Bronwyn played it back to each other, and like I, yeah, I proposed something completely different. I think I was singing a song of like, I don't know, it was like Usher's Yeah or whatever to the tune of Usher's Yeah it was, um, I, I was saying that line and then, you know, Rosaline said it in a very like different way. So we had to go back and re-record that. Um, but yeah, I don't know what was, yeah, what was going with this, but basically, yeah, Boyette um, as a character, we we talked a lot about um, Puck as well and, and like exists, uh, a character who kind of exists inside the play, but there's also outside of the play and also does a lot of commentary on things. Um, and we had a lot of fun with uh, the mischief, mischief of that. Um, and um, I just, yeah, I just think it's really, really interesting that this character has this place within the princess's court, um, utilizes those those devices that we talked about um, uh, and yeah, can still make fun of people. Um, but then still, I don't, I don't really know if he's, I don't really know whether he's on the the women's level still. Even even though he gives as good as he can get, sometimes I still don't think he's quite there. But he, he you know, has a, he has a good go. Yeah, we. Oh, oh I was just going to say there was something else puck like, which is the mischief making. That there there is there does seem to be a lot of like I'm I'm particularly thinking about that the wonderful scene where all of the guys give you the letters, <laughs> right? And that there is like you start answering truthfully and then all of a sudden you just turn it into a game, which I, I just love that there's this like, they're like desperate to get this information to the ladies from you. And you're just like, oh, I'm the guy with the bathroom key. This is great. You know, like, like <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of reference to Boyette being like a little like Cupid in this. And so when I've done it on stage before, my um, Boyette had, uh, there, there, okay, so there's this moment where uh, it's the only political chat of the whole play, very fun, between the, the king and the princess. And they're talking about the deeds of Aquitaine and whatnot. And, um, and uh, the princess is like, well, Boyette has this stuff that can show you that the payment was not made and whatnot. And, uh, and the king is like, okay, well, show me and I'll, you know, I'll do what you want me to do. And, and Boyette says the letter has, you know, it has not come. And, um, and when I've done that on stage, I, I've made it a big deal of, he sees the spark and he's like, and he's got that paper, right? And it's like, he crumples it up or puts it behind his back. And he's like, oh, it'll be here tomorrow. Just like, I'm gonna give them 24 hours together, right? So Alexander and I recorded it. And when you listen to it, he does give that insinuation, but we can't show that the way it is, but we did our best because I do think that in the text, it's so heavily planted, you know, thou art an old love monger. Like they, everyone, just piles on him about being this hopeless romantic. And while he doesn't get a love story, 
he is trying to make it happen with everyone else. He's the one who's like, okay, Rosaline, who is the shooter? Tell me more. Like, <laughs> who is your lover? Trying to get everyone together. And he's the one that gives a long speech that to me, the, the pace always sounds like uh, the night before Christmas and all through the house. Like, um, it's very got that same, the rhyming scheme is working against you in that one. But um uh, where he's like, well, I saw and his eyes were all on your eyes. And he very much, like he says, he's put a, you know, a, a tongue to the words that his eyes see. Oh, gosh, I sound so smart in this. But, um, you know, he, he's, he's the mouth box for, for the love, right? The love that exists in this play that doesn't end up working out, right? Because it's, you know, people are under a certain impressions the men aren't genuine and the ladies don't think they are I mean it's just it's ridiculous what they what they do um and yes that is a shocking moment I must say at the end of the play when the princess is just like oh we thought you guys were just fucking around <laughs> and and they're like no we were genuine <laughs> you know like that that is such a funny moment and to me that that is what makes it such a unique end of a comedy because you know having just worked on two gentlemen of verona and you get to the engine you're like what the actual fuck did i just <laughs> you know like we get to the end it's like ah happy off we go off we trot and it's like so it's like wrung out just in this ridiculous knot so that we we have a happy ending but this is like it refuses to do that twist and in that way the the ending of the play is is so surprising um because yeah. you're like ah yes it's been merry it's been fun we played with the language there was a lot of there are so many dirty jokes in this play too oh my lord um oh Oh, and all spoken by boy. <laughs> like, <laughs> just all of them right out of his mouth, just and Costard too. They just yeah. go back and forth to the point where Mariah's like, You're so gross. Yeah. Stop. <laughs> like, and none of here, what's so great is that, like, that actually, you know, we've got all the Latin from Holofernes, but I think those exchanges are the most dense in the play. Like, mm. the, the little back and forth, but you don't need a translation for what they mean no I don't know what cleaving the pin is but I can guess yeah <laughs> and so that's what's fun about doing that scene it's just like and I think you know maybe I'm a terrible director for this but when we were kind of doing it uh when I was pretending to be costard and then pretending to be boyette for my respective actors I was like don't worry about what it means just <laughs> imbibe what you think it means <laughs> that's where we get it from you know because there's no way especially over audio mm. that we're ever going to be able to be like ah so if you didn't know um <laughs> this is what this means and mm -hmm. and it's more important that you as the actor know the what it makes you feel like what mm. you're trying to uh tell them with that and um and uh, they do a great job. It's it's greasy and it's gross, right? Yeah, yeah. It's really Absolutely. greasy is like a little theme in this too. Greasy stuff. Yeah. <laughs> greasy jump. <laughs> I've 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 also just to keep coming back to the play because I really I really do think the play at the end is is a wonderful. 
I believe I could please correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe this was written before Midsummer, um, or at least is perceived to be written maybe around the same time. Maybe I it's I don't know when Midsummer was written, so yeah. I, I um someone want to do a quick Google? <laughs> I think it's 1595. Yeah, Midsummer's about 1595 ish, and I think this is slightly slightly and, before yeah and it was written in the same time because they're all the lyrical ones right yeah, so this and richard the yeah. second and um romeo and juliet as well or is that that yeah. makes so sense so that's why yeah. yeah they're all the ones that are way more rhyming verse and like this one is 66 percent of it but yeah that the um, extraordinary the but yeah the worthies. the worthies and and also just what i took from also is like oh my god what a frustrating audience <laughs> For that, I mean, I think obviously like what we know from how performances were at the Globe and with like, there were a lot of distractions, right? There was a lot else going on. It wasn't just let's sit quietly in the dark and not make a sound until the end of the play. Um, it was it was a much more sort of participatory endeavor, but the, it also seems like all the guys, right? And then I'm also thinking about like Demetrius and Lysander. They're just, they're just howling. They're just hooting and hollering and like causing quite a stir. And the poor actors are just like, you have put me out of countenance. You know, like there's something (laughs) deeply like sad to me about like, I learned my lines, I did the thing. And then I came out on stage. they yelled at me you know like (laughs) there's something like very tragic about the way that the play ends up I don't I don't know if if any of you just like could imagine a similar situation (laughs) today when that what would that would be like yeah oh please go ahead Charlie when when we um uh, I do have a point about the recording that we've got here but um (laughs) when we did it um Stratford with Bromwins one (laughs) We had the the couples in kind of a diamond formation with the king and, and princess at the front. And just halfway through the heckling, I just turned around and started watching the other lords with my back to the play. So this is where the show is now. <laughs> um, but yeah, with the uh, Judas I Am and Holofernes kind of getting his moment on stage in front of everyone and they ruin it. Um, <laughs> it. it uh, put me in mind of, I think it said to Bronwyn at the time, Babu from Seinfeld with the, the bad man, you're very, very bad man. <laughs> Just, like, you're, you're trying to be nice, but you're really ruining everything for me. Um, so yeah, it was it was a lot of fun to do. Even in the, uh... Yeah, no, I, I think that those scenes, it's like, it doesn't matter how much you prepare. Um, again it's like in in a way that it's like a mixture of performative and scholarship and stuff and they get up there and the lords are just they just ask questions again and it feels again like a commentary on scholarship and these things where like you can get get up there and have everything prepared and have something really great to say and then someone's like um but what if you you know and just like undercut you completely and just continue to do that until they've gone through all of them um and it's great because they're also you know they are making fun of um cost art as pompey but again he just doesn't realize it um and he just rolls with it and ends up having way more power and is everyone's favorite because he's like 
you know yeah you're right I did mess that up <laughs> and just like keeps going and and it's great and um uh yeah I think the end is really it's it's an interesting it's hard to it's hard it's hard I'd love to hear from some of the other people and then notably the none of the women speak apart from the princess like four times and all of her lines are you're okay you're doing all right keep going and for me that's a clear sign it's not written in this text anywhere but this is the last straw you know like these these lords are so out of line and then right after that that's when markety comes in there's not a there's not a even moment of consideration of am i gonna stay for you look what you just did you just tore grown men down like it's horrible I do also, I get the sense that because it's so energized, like their commentary and their questions, I get the sense that they were just so like embarrassed by what just happened that they're like, oh, what shall I do? Let me torment someone else to make me feel better about myself. Like I, I definitely get there's, there's quite a bit of covering going on, but it is definitely a, um, it is such a hard turn. I, I think that that that's what what strikes me about that that last scene. It also seems like the messenger arrives at the height of not only the comedy but also the really dirty jokes. Like we are in, we are at the the peak of just like absolute sex bathroom, you name it, humor. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh yes, your, your father is, oh yeah, he's dead, isn't he? You know, it's like, whoa, what a turn. And, and, and I was just wondering if, um, if any thoughts, like some of them have, have come up, but if any thoughts about like the staging, particularly of, of the end of the play came up, I know, I know this is a radio production, but I know that sometimes uh, when we've done previous productions, we've had discussions about like, oh, well, I wonder if this would be enter aloft, you know, if, if we would be dealing with a balcony in this situation or um, how would we interact with the audience in this moment? And if any of those sort of came up, but then just generally about how you do that turn at the end and, and, and what the, what you do with the, the, the very, very end of the play. I'm just going to keep talking until someone tells me to shut up. So um, please like, literally I'm tired of my own voice so if anyone has anything to say just jump in but um I guess my first time I did this play I played Markety um so we we had like a um a thrust stage um it had two levels every you know this part everyone's on stage it's madness it's absolute ruckus people are screaming you know you can't you really don't understand a lot of the lines by the end <laughs> because it's just all over the place. Um, and I came down the center aisle of the audience and I kneeled in the front, not leaving the audience yet. Um, and just like having everyone stop talking immediately when it happens. And I did this in England too. We were in a, what would you call it, Charlie? Like a traverse, like a big long hall kind of thing. And so the audience was on all of the sides, except for the well, nope. So it was on two of the sides and then they were kind of, it was like a cross in between and there were entrances on three of the sides. And um, yeah, Markety kind of came down and just plopped herself in the middle. And I think that 
the marketing entrance is is hard because obviously it's you know everyone quiets down and listens right but the key moment is that after the princess says for my life and then the text literally goes from princess to queen is that you have everyone on stage drop down um into a, a you know a, a bow or a kneel um to show reverence and the last person being the king of Navarre, uh, because the prince or the queen of France, been more powerful in terms of land, right? So again, uh, this kind of like silly kingly figure, right? Who doesn't have a whole lot of authority, I'll be honest. Um, he doesn't seem to be able to wrangle, you know, his six people that live in his court um, uh, or village. And, uh, you know, but him being the last person Right, and they have that moment. And then when Barone says, were these away, the scene begins to cloud. That's that's when the transition kind of occurs. And I know that with every single one of the actors um, who had lines after that point, it was a, we talked about tone shift, you know? And some, some don't have any lines after that point, right? So none of the comedic characters really do. Boyette's done, Oliverne's is done, uh, Costard's done, right, yeah? Uh, yeah, your your last line is "I'll do it in my shirt," just hilarious. Um, yep. You know, every everyone's done, and it's just the lords and the ladies and our motto left. Um, so, yeah, that's it. so we had a real talk about tone shift after that, and this is no longer the kind of happy-go-lucky comedy that has no sense of time or space anymore. This is a we're running out of time. This is all the time we have left. And we're going to spend most of it with these songs <laughs> um, that just kind of come out of nowhere about cuckolding and they're, you know, sad, but funny and like what's happening. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I, anyone else can speak more on that, but it's just about really giving that gravity that actually now it's hit the Lords that in a play that doesn't talk about time very much, suddenly we have too little of it left. It also seems like all the characters suddenly it's like, oh, there are consequences to actions like that happen. Cause that's, that's also with Jaquanetta too, right? Um, there are consequences to actions is another thing we're kind of left with a bit um, uh, at the end, at the end of the play, um, as well as being time stressed. We also seem like responsibility stressed <laughs> by the, the very end. Um, I think it is really interesting. Interesting. Oh, go ahead. No, you can. Um, I was just going to say, I think it was uh, it was real interesting as one of the lords to have that sudden switch at the end, where this whole time we're so unaware of our actions and what we're doing, and yet we're still trying to make this connection. Where, as Bronwyn said before we really have no interaction with these women at all, the entire play, yet the whole time we're pursuing them and trying to get their attention. And then this sudden tone shift, I don't know, it's incredible in a way that these guys finally realize, oh, these things that we've been doing are so useless and so futile when really we should have been, you know, ourselves and like actually 
um, trying to have a conversation with the lady instead of dressing up as Russian and um, being in disguise. I just, I love the end of the show for that reason. Just that, that sudden shift. I think it's, it's a really like powerful. Yeah, absolutely. I also get the sense that the learning process is, is truly beginning at the end of the play. There does seem to me to be something of like, as you like it times four, right? And the, the, the Rosalind is one of the things I love about her is she's, She's a woman who's very much in love, but is also has the outside perspective to see how ridiculous people are when they're in love, like, and, and how, and so holding that, that double, um, it is, is really wonderful. And also educating the person. No, 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 no. People don't die because of love. You know, they die because they drown trying to pursue that, you know, and that there, there is a bit of that reality to me that it seems that creeps in at the end as well. And that the, the education process that the young men maybe thought that it was about one thing, but really by the end of the play, it's about, oh, how do I actually become a partner? And like, how do I, how do I learn to be in a partnership and, and live in a day-to-day -day love as opposed to this idealized, you know, form of love that, that has no, some, uh, sorry, I'm just, I'm just jumping all over the place, but something else that I wanted to bring in is the difference, which has come up in quite a lot of these early plays and the conflict sometimes between courtly love and erotic love or romantic love, right? And that, that the, those two things do not work well together and I think we get a, a wonderful um a wonderful contrast sorry I live like over LaGuardia I swear to god there's just plans planes landing on my head um how, how we get that conflict in here and how we start to transition or maybe we don't I mean maybe that's the other is that maybe this doesn't end well for these guys <laughs> you know? I mean we lost the sequel so <laughs> we don't know how it ends I think that kind of speaks to sometimes the unawareness of the male perspective, for sure, because I know so many guys that literally, you know, they're after one thing and one thing only, and it's really not the greatest thing. And it's like, no, you, there's so much more to these partnerships and just relationships in general, whether those are like friendships, whatever, um, that really beg for so much more. And that's kind of what we see with these characters is that these guys really just want the, the base. So like, you know, that kind of low level and kind of where you said it needs to be a partnership is what they really are looking for. And they've been like going about it in the wrong way. Yeah, no, that's, that's very true. Um, and I think it's interesting because I do think that they're, they're, this play is, uh, very cool because I don't think there's another one that I can think of and please anyone who knows more than me correct me if I'm wrong I don't know another play where you have four women who are of the same stature that kind of get to like pal around together and then you, of course you do have the token low-level lady <laughs> um who is always in there right so you do have that kind of class distinction you've got this scene where Lafernes and Nathaniel like read out this letter that Barone has written to Rosaline, but uh, it's been given to Jacquinetta, right? And <laughs> Jacquinetta is like, you know, a country maid, and she's being read this letter about, 
you know, her, her voice is dreadful thunder and all these things, right? And it's so over her head, right? When the letter that is actually meant for her is like, I am the king, witness your loneliness, <laughs> like that, that our motto has written for her. So there's a big distinction about what seems to be lost from our motto, but ends up being the only genuine connection that's upheld and connected and made, right? Versus the lords who seem like they're oh, so in love with them, what whatever, right? But they don't go about it in any, any good, genuine way. And I know, Lee, you wanted to say something before, so please, like, hop in if we haven't moved past your point too much. But um, yeah, I, I, I think that's that's a really interesting point about... And, and more when I've done it on stage, I know in the production that I did in England, we talked a lot about the public versus the private. And I think that when you've got this play on stage, that's absolutely something to play. It's, it's profound and it's exciting when, when Boyette leaves what the ladies get to say and do. And we, we tried to do a whole thing where they take off their corsets, but let me tell you that is time consuming and uh, fails real, real fast. So more, they just kind of like all went like, ah, <laughs> you know, and, and got way more physical. And when any man would enter the room, it was cinched up again, prim and proper, right? And then, you know, uh, so again, yeah, that public versus private, that lust versus, um, love uh it's really interesting and yeah lee if you wanted to i was just going to talk about um you were talking about the end of the play i was going to say something about um the songs and staging them and the different choices you have to make there so it definitely feels to me like the end of the play with the songs into armado's last lines you're in that meta theatrical space where his last lines about we this way you that way are also about the audience and the actors. So you have to decide who all is going to sing. Are you going to have all of the actors sing? Or are you going to have only the characters who would be singing sing? Are you having people dance? Who's dancing? When do they start dancing? When do they start singing? Obviously in a radio play, it's a little bit different. You don't have to contend with all of those issues, but- um, No, and we've just got, a, you know, Jen, who is an incredible, incredible vocalist and wrote all the music for this radio play, who's not been a character and she suddenly uh, <laughs> sings them, you know, and we just, we're just okay with that because mm. it sounds fantastic. But I've, uh, I've seen yeah. it done a lot of different ways. I've seen it done like, okay, as soon as the music starts, you're switching from your character to an actor and we're doing a jig. I've seen it done. You stay in character the whole time. I've seen it done like there's a transition between and by the time you get to the second song everyone is an actor not a character um i don't think any of those are bad options but uh, it's an interesting question and it sort of sets the tone that you're leaving with do you break the world before the end of the play i think yeah. is a really interesting question with the with those do you start the jig yeah <laughs> that would have ended the play in the play. I know. feel like I've never done, I've never done it the meta theatrical way, um, which would be interesting. I mean, I don't think I should direct this play again for at least <laughs> 10 years. Uh, I've done it, you know, too many times in the span of three, but um, <laughs> three for three. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I've always done it the, the way that, you know, Lee was saying, uh, 
the the actors are still the characters, but it does have a double meaning and they kind of can look at the audience and, and mean that, but still be in character. And, um, and I just, uh, yes, I, I, uh, oh yeah. gosh, my brain, there was the, something. Yeah. The first time I did it, it was, um, it was sort of like a dissolving of the characters, if that makes sense. In the, the spring song, um, the lords and ladies were, I think, dancing, but maybe not singing. We were dancing with our partners. Um, uh, but then by the second song, it moved into, instead of a partner dance, a group dance where we were just all like in a circle walking around. Um, and so by the very end, the characters had sort of fallen away. And our actor playing Armado, he took off the hat and he dropped the uh, very silly accent he'd been doing to deliver the final line sort of as himself. Um, sort, of, sort of, I guess, <laughs> moving from the one meaning to the second rather than doing both at once. Yeah, I, I, I remembered. I was going to reference the RSC's version that they did. Um, I don't know what year someone probably could tell me, but um, where they had done it in partnership with Much Ado About Nothing, but they had called Much Ado Loves Labors One because they do have very similar blueprints of characters, right? We've got a Dogberry as Dull. We've got Rosaline as uh, Beatrice and Benedict Barone and all, you know, they all kind of can be schmooshed into the other a bit, right? Um, but at the end of Love's Labor's Lost, uh, they said it in right before World War One. Again, correct me if I'm wrong. And then uh, the war, ha the war happens, right? And then the songs that they sing are war songs, and the ladies watch the lords leave and go off to war. Yes. For me, I thought that that, while it linked the two plays together, completely changed the ending of the play because instead of the ladies leaving for duty, it was the men leaving for duty again. And while it had a very like, I know everyone loved it, it was very nostalgic ending, right? These war, the, the tune that they put the songs to was very, and the way that it's lit and the way that it looks, very emotive, right? But again, it, it just changed, changed what the power dynamic of that moment is and how incredible that power dynamic is um uh and yeah I just like as as someone who never got to see it in person I've watched the the filmed version and I haven't watched the Love's Labors one uh part of it and I'm sure that obviously the reason why they did that was to link the plays I understand that on a very logical level but I'm still peeved about it because it's the it's the production that people reference it's this or Kenneth Branagh's and both I mean are ill representations of the play this play gets a very bad rap and uh it's a yeah it's a, it's a bummer to me that the like biggest production you can think of that's filmed and you can access changes so much of it they also like make the nine worthies thing fully finished they cut out the heckling um Charlie, did you see it yeah that must have been 2014 i think because of the hundred the centenary of the start of the first world war um yeah no i i hated that production um that ending also kind of made it into a, a tragedy of the upper class in terms of it was only the lords going away and not 
Costard, yeah, all the other people. The one thing I would defend in Ken Branagh's film is Timothy Spall singing I Get No Kick From Champagne in a plane. That was <laughs> that's exceptional. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I made it that far. I think I, I think I finished it by the time we met him. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, no, the, um, the, the RSC ones was very much going for a Downton Abbey aesthetic and it was very popular in that, but it, yeah, it didn't, um, I didn't think it really got the stakes in the same way. But, um, I was thinking earlier as well that, that um, the way that Shakespeare drops the hint in, because I don't think the, the King of France's health is talked about that much, apart from there is one thing where in the letter that he sent to Navarre, he's got quite a few details wrong. He's saying, where's my, like, where's the money I sent you? We already paid that. Like, basically, I think something's maybe up. And then, yeah, it just comes back at the, the very end. And I thought Jen's song worked really well in this production as well because um, she kind of really goes for it, obviously. Um, she and does. It's fantastic. Yeah. In a way that if it were, you, you probably wouldn't do on stage, but because it's the recording, it kind of gives that extra meaning to art kind of uh, uh, being performed despite the gravity of the situation around it. So kind of, and the kind of meta aspect of that as well. Um, could I briefly tell the very, this story from the joke run when we did, we, with Bromley's production, we, we had a reviewer in on the Tuesday and opening night on the Thursday. So Wednesday we had kind of a joke run. Oh yes. And yes, yes, yes. And, and there was a bit where, Birone, who was quite late to the production, kind of tripped over a couple of lines. And so Holofernes, instead of coming back with a line, just, what? And so I started giggling from there. And then Bromwim was getting up, but there was a very, they were all wearing those very restrictive corsets. So I had to be helped up. So we were giggling and we were <laughs> breaking character. And we, were, we got the giggles. And then we knew that Markaday was going to come in with his news, and we just, <laughs> uh, the king, my father, dead for my life, and then everybody just started snickering at the back of the <laughs> Um So, yeah, that was, again, is one of the things that you miss from the rehearsal room. Oh, um, yeah. But, I thought you were going to talk about the penguin run. Oh, no, that was the same one. Yeah. 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 We just started randomly putting the word penguin in. Yeah, I think it was the it was the fact that um, I, I think our boyette normally would show a sign that said no women. And did Elliot come on and he had like no penguins written or something like that? Just like and I, I don't remember what it was, but then everyone just started to any kind of two syllable noun replace with penguin. And um, I was already filling in for an actress who was sick that run. And everyone had been working so hard that it just kind of, I think we needed this run to kind of just like let out. We were, it was just so much we had been doing. And so, uh, yeah, I also started to add Penguin in, in, in solidarity. So um, it was a very fun run <laughs> and uh, we'll always go down in history uh, as, as a good one.
um the penguin run the penguin run penguin yes exactly (laughs) um i okay this is kind of out of left field but i did have a question about nationalities in this play because there's so much emphasis put on Don Armado is a Spanish, right? And like they dress up as Russians and like these are ladies of France. And I, I just wondered if if you had any thoughts about like what the significance of the all of these different nationalities being so, you know, and he's the king of Navarre. You know, th- there's just a really interesting focus on on nationality and i wonder if it has to do with the duty that you're talking about at the end that i i didn't think about that but that 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 is that is a wonderful way of thinking about it that the women are all called away because they have responsibilities to perform right they they they're they're going away and i i love that the task that rosaline gives perone is like go make people laugh who are about to die (laughs) like what an amazing task like go to the hospital and make people laugh um it's great i love it it (laughs) It's uh, it reminds me of that line from Much Ado that um, Benedict says. That's just along. I can't remember. I normally remember the exact line. My brain isn't working today, so it's along the lines of like, uh, it's sad for people that can't hear their detractions and put them to mending. Um, and and <laughs> that's what the end of this play is. She's like, here's your detraction. Here's how you can fix it. Uh, and if you do that, come back in a year, check in with me. We'll see. We'll see how we feel, you know? And I think that that's great. Like, uh, I've never, yeah, it's, it's again, like this powerful play, uh, which or this power play. Power play um, in a powerful play. <laughs> uh, exactly. Uh, but yeah, what's great is that, yeah, you have all these French people speaking English, but there's a lot of allusion to French. You know, people are saying uh, French words all the time, but to hit the rhyme and meter, you have to anglicize them, um, which is so funny to me. Uh, you know, uh, a Jew uh, rhymes with you, but you can't say it in the way that you would say it if you're French because you wouldn't put so much emphasis on the you, <laughs> like, you know, and um, it's, it's yeah it's uh, there's a lot of stuff like that and then the russian but it's, it's just so ridiculous uh and Why russians that's what i just it's so seems so very much it, like my point like out of left field like <laughs> yeah it's it's not the the romantic uh place that i you know like i would think that if they were to choose to dress up like someone it would be you know, maybe like Italians or Spaniards, you know, the languages of love, right? But you've already got the Spaniard who is othered for being foreign and that's his purpose, right? Um, and, you know, he is looked at and laughed at because he is, you know, not from France or Navarre. Uh, and yet he uses some of the most, uh, or some of the smartest language in the play. And he is fine. That's finally recognized by Holofernes, uh, with the posteriors of this day uh and uh yeah it is i mean i know charlie could talk more about the the little pronunciation bit that he does this holofernes which is to me one of the funniest parts but i i think i don't know why they've chosen russians i i don't i think it must have been who has a crazy accent that we're not already using (laughs) you know like we're already we're deep in with the and we're so lucky we have uh, Gabe Calleja playing 
Don Armado in this one, who was truly Spaniard, um, like, uh, and I mean, he's not from Spain. He was born here with his parents. Um, and uh, he can do that accent with uh, no irony and no, no making fun of, because I think that the key is to play Don Armado as genuine as possible. Absolutely. So that when you see characters playing uh, someone who's foreign ungenuinely, disingenuinely, <laughs> uh, i.e. the Russians, it's a bigger stir. Because if you have someone who's just a caricature of a Spaniard, and then you've got caricatures that they're doing of Russians, it just doesn't hit as hard. And I think that if you focus on Don Armado being the most genuine character in the play, like the only one that really speaks his truth the entire time, then you get a real heart to it and it ends with his line. Well, and that's what's so remarkable to me, right? It, you know, we have to restore order at the end of Elizabethan plays. It must be, order must be restored. And traditionally the the person who's kind of the highest status is the person who ends the play. Um, so it's, it's very, it's very telling to me that Don Armado ends the play, right? That they're, it's and not it's the king of Navarre. It's not the yeah. princess. It's Don Armado. Which is... And that's, you know, that's an editor's choice at the end of the day. I think it's not in the mm -hmm. folio. It's just the lines at the end oh, um, wow. aren't, aren't attributed to any character, but I think it is the strongest choice by far. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it, reminds, it reminds me a little bit of Charles and Cressida to bring up my other favorite play uh it does end with Pandarus who again has been this character that's kind of like shepherded you through he's been very funny but at the end he has lost the most he's been degraded the furthest I mean he's alive but he's dying of syphilis no less and yet he is the one person who's kind of told the truth the whole time kind of like been an authority on getting the love together and and then you know is not rewarded for it at all and that's what his end is it's a curse right yeah. um and in similar ways this is like not the ending you expect but the one that makes the most sense mm. um with don armado do it's definitely not a curse it's a lovely blessing <laughs> but um but yeah 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 i i noticed that was your uh i did a, a project to uh, oh my God, over a year ago now, where I asked people to send me a recording of their favorite line from Shakespeare. And that was Bronwyn's while drinking sangria in the Santa Fe sunset. It was a yes. pretty amazing video. And I have, it on a, I have it on a necklace that I wear. I don't take off. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's, uh, it's an ever present uh, thing for me. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, who wants to talk about math? No one? Okay. I want to talk about <laughs> math um, and numerology in this play. Uh, I'm obsessed with the math and the numerology in this play. The word three comes up 45 times in this cut version, right? Um, and then four comes up nine times. And the, the idea of the imbalance, right? Uh, the fox, the ape, and the humble bee were still at odds, being but three until the goose came out of doors, staying the odds by adding four, right? It's all about the completion. And this show, it climaxes, but it does not finish, right? So make it all just as sexual as the play is. Um, and 
the fact that three is weighted so heavily in this is so interesting to me because it, it seems to allude to the fact that you need four to finish this off. And yet we're just still three, 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 three. And um, what's great is that sometimes four isn't even the number, but it, it can be played as four. So like I wrote down this one. Um, so it's when the, when Boyette has come and said, okay, the, <laughs> the Lords are coming back. They're dressed as Russians. Like, you know, uh, and th they'll know the ladies by the, you know, gar or the gift that they did bestow, right? And she says, and will they so? The gallant shall be tasked for ladies. We shall every one be masked, right? So if you think of the four ladies as like, for ladies, I'm telling you this, right? Or four ladies, we shall every one be masked. What? This, this damn play is so cool with the numbers. It's amazing. And there's so many like counting things like Costar does a ton of them. Um, Moth and Armado do tons of it. We're talking all and Armado is like, I'm ill at reckoning. Reckoning is basic addition, right? Uh, math. Yeah, maths. He's, I'm not good at math, right? And um, and then Costard is challenging the scholars on their math. And Barone going back, well, like, you're three times thrice is nine. And which the, uh, what does Moth say? Something about which the base vulgar do call three. Yeah, there's, I mean, I don't know. This is just me going on a rant. If anyone wants to weigh in on uh, numbers or math, I think it's very interesting. And I guarantee every single one of your characters, people I'm looking at on the screen, said something about numbers in this play because, uh, may, okay, maybe not the forester and the lord but, but uh definitely moth and definitely persist but i mean you know, lord longaville is one that's a number yeah, that is a number there's a number and you know it's uh, and and another thing is like the fact that holofernes talks in lists and then armado tries to imitate that he also talks in lists but his lists are like threes and fours whereas holofernes can go on for like a casual nine right but our motto is like the time when the place where you know like it's it's bump 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 uh they came they saw that oh boyette's letter that he reads out loud there's your numbers you you talk in threes over and over and over again um anyway i don't know thoughts feelings i'm obsessed with this i want to go write a phd 80 pages about numbers and just i think i should just write a book about love savers lost at this point but if anyone wants to weigh in i'm i'm vibing about it i also really love the way that numbers get different names in this play like one of my favorite bits is the costard with the remuneration and and that like, oh, this now means remuneration and this three penny means, farthing, you know, it's like, yeah, three. there we go. Three. Well, and also rhetoric, you know, in, in so many rhetorical figures in Shakespeare come in threes as well. Just, it's a, it's a great way to also order prose is, you know, it, we just remember things, phone numbers are in threes. Like it's, it's an easy way for us to remember. And I also wonder if there's, 
I always wonder if it's like Shakespeare, the actor put in a lot of stuff because it's easier to remember things. Yeah, I wonder that too. I, I just love like it's just it's like he got carried away with himself and he was like oh what if I just yeah. stick another one in here like ah, <laughs> oh, you know and I, I like you even see it when the king is introducing the nine worthies or whatever um you know it's uh, yeah three three threes and three times <laughs> oh we know how much three is and back and forth back and forth and then he reads out you know who's gonna come on and he reads out five names and then he says like the, the other four and there's just like again like a, a misunderstanding about counting just like at the basic level yeah. and I think that that's what's so great is these lords who are like we're gonna be scholars we're so smart we're gonna be remembered for our our thoughts can't really keep track of numbers and when they're questioned by the like lowest person on the intelligence scale seemingly about numbers they they kind of like get flustered in a way and like aren't even really able to take control back of the situation <laughs> I, I you know like they definitely are like no costard three times thrice is nine but he is so convinced it's not that no one corrects him no one corrects it like they're almost it's it's i just love it i just think it's so silly and well i tried to avoid talking about as much as possible there is the it just reminded me with costard that pointing out the three times three is nine we had the other lords each holding up three fingers <laughs> like just count them we've got different people <laughs> we've got three people holding up three fingers that's nine right <laughs> yeah no absolutely and, the, and that's what's uh that's what's fun about an audio play you're just like we can't count hope you can hope you understand all this math stuff that we're throwing at you some of it was cut not all of it though i kept most of it because i love it but i yeah some of it <laughs> some of it had to go one of the i mean one of the one of the joys and one of the reasons that i sort of am doing this project of working through the entire canon boom um through audio plays is you you really do get to focus on the text and sometimes that can be infuriating <laughs> and sometimes it can be really um revealing like uh uh we're in the, i'm in the process of releasing our taming of the shrew but i have such a new understanding of the play than my received notions from tons and tons and tons of productions that are just super slapstick and super violent and i didn't realize until sort of doing this that oh my god petruchio never hits kate there's never any violence against her it is in the script that she hits him three times, right? Or, or that she hits three people in the play. And the power dynamics in that play are endlessly fascinating. And I sort of didn't realize that because of the weight of sort of historical production and the received notions about the characters. Um, so that was, that was one of the, one of the, one was COVID obviously. And like, oh, there's a lot of actors that probably would, love to join this journey um <laughs> well we're all stuck um but yeah when 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 you when you sort of are not thinking if when you're thinking about hearing a play right instead of seeing a play in our theater audiences versus our television viewers um that that we start to pick up on things and i i think that's that's a wonderful example bronwyn of the like all of a sudden we start hearing repetitions of rhetorical figures we start hearing mathematics we start hearing 
the patterns in which characters interact, like you talked about, which I, I love the, the spitter versus the twister. Um, and so, yeah, I guess sort of to, to conclude, cause I realize we're, we're coming up on, on two hours here is, is just, were there any surprises for you in this process? Um, uh, from, from any perspective, really from the perspective of, of the characters, from the, any, like, for those of you who have been in previous productions, any sort of like, oh my God, I didn't, I didn't realize that was there or, or, um, any moments like that, that, that you would care to share with our podcast audience? Um, I, I probably share from, from the perspective of the process of hearing other people's lines and how um, when you work in Shakespeare, oftentimes I think there is a, well, for me anyway, I feel like I have to keep very um, specific to just my lines. But during this process with Bronwyn, um, we did a lot of reaction reactions to other people's lines and we were able to really hear what the other what the other lines were because we were we were listening we were reading back what the person said before us um and that we would we would react we would react we might audibly say something we might you know and be keeping a lot more organic in that way so that like really i guess in some ways i don't know if this is an answer to your question but it really just opened up um yeah the richness of of the of like the of the play between the characters and how we can have that jokey jovial banter and react to what they're saying in their line almost by doing it in isolation um, and actually doing it technically like that and how we discover so much more in that um, whereas obviously when you're doing a play normally you just you they say their line you say your line um, you might or you might give an audible reaction like in through impulse but doing it technically you hear what the other person's saying so much more so that's my perspective on that i particularly enjoyed the when don armado talks about the king and the way he he puts his finger in my excrement and everyone was like oh <laughs> he's like my mustache that was a particularly um that one jumped out at me for sure <laughs> I was very harrowing to do because I had done the recording with uh, Gabe so much earlier and I realized that when he said excrement he really like fell off around the mint so it was like excrement and so then I had to take that word apart and boost the volume so like if you listen carefully you'll hear him being like does dally with my excrement and it's just like um suddenly uh really loud when he says excrement because I had to make it larger because I had asked all the actors to send me all these vocal reactions to different things and I had to fit it in and suddenly they were covering half the word and I was like, oh, no, it's an it doesn't make sense. And so, um, yeah, but I had, I had a lot of great vocal reactions come in and uh, that was really fun and it was something I couldn't do until I'd finished the basic layer of the play, right? Uh, to figure out where they were needed. And there were discoveries, I guess I'll go next, and uh, sorry. Uh, and my discovery was just how much, when you're working in this kind of format, how much you kind of need audio cues sometimes. And um, Ian can probably talk more about this too, but as a character, Costard enters, he's only in, he's in every scene but one. He's not in two one, which is where we meet the ladies, right? So it's kind of a more isolated thing. And then the Lords kind of come in and then they leave, right? And um, 
that's the only scene Costar doesn't appear in. And the rest, he just kind of saunters in at some point, right? So I was like, Ian, can you record yourself doing some sort of whistle or, or noise or something? And he sent me such a lovely array of sounds. And, and so I went with this whistle and I initially had put it in right before he enters every single time, right? But then it was a little weird. Like we have like long of those like call started this way and it's like, woo, 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 woo. and I'm just like, it's not gonna, it's not gonna read because he's not the first person that speaks. So then I ended up having to take the whistle out of the two times that he doesn't speak first, right? So it's dull that's speaking. And if I could have found some sort of sound that sounded like some sort of constable walking into a situation, the amount of footsteps I downloaded and then didn't use because they all sound stupid or they sound okay, but then it doesn't sound like someone ever stops walking. It just sounds like they just like flew up in the air suddenly. And so, you know, I, I, I couldn't get a, a sound for him because I didn't want to overcrowd it. But so you'll see in later scenes, anytime Costard enters, even if he does enter with Jack Winetta, because they kind of move as a pair, it has a little whistle before. And and the whistle is helped along by Boyette saying, here comes a member of the Commonwealth and um, you know, things like that. So that's a that's the thing I discovered about this text is how many clues are kind of like written in in some ways but when you're doing it in this format and someone just pops up uh, without an announcement you're like I don't know I just hope their voice sounds different enough from everyone else that we realize someone else has entered the scene because I'm not going to litter this with a bunch of footsteps because then you have to do it for everyone (laughs) it's too much yeah that that has also been a, a recent discovery of, um, of directing Julius Caesar at, this summer. And um, <laughs> just, I was like, I was going through cutting and I was like, wait a second, why are there so many times when every time people speak to each other, they say their names? I'm like, this must just have been like stagecraft. This is just like, ah, Brut- look, Brutus, look who's arrived. It's it's Cassius, you know, and, and, and Pindarus and all of these names of these characters that we only meet once. And sometimes you're like, oh, well, there's no dramatic reason for this, but frequently like those, there are technical reasons for that, right? This is a cue to the audience who might have just been like buying an orange or whatever. <laughs> like, ah, new character has arrived or remember this guy? Um, so it is, there has been both a romantic process of like, oh God, let's lose ourselves in these works. And also like a very unromantic process of like, there are some really basic technical stagecraft things that are worked into these plays that sometimes we don't notice when we're staging it. And we're like, why do we need to say his name? It's like, oh no, this is for the audience. This is for the audience this moment. So that's, that's been a fun discovery of this whole process, I think. Yeah, for me, um, one discovery that I had was how unactive I am in my listening just in general as sometimes as a performer and also just as a person and how important it becomes when you're only hearing this text. There's no spectacle. There's nothing to really draw your attention in except for the words that are being spoken. And it made me realize like, wow, I really am just so passive sometimes whenever I either watch something on TV or I'm watching a play or whatever it is that we kind of just sit back today. And I feel like most times we just sit back and we just, either we get on our phones or we do something else, but the way the format that we did, 
it, you really had to be active and you really had to be paying attention. And it was such a, like a remarkable like, Oh, I, I really should put as much effort as possible into just listening because I'm going to get so much more out of this story and out of this text than I previously did. And that was just such a cool, a cool thing for me as I was listening to everybody, um, as I was adjusting levels for some of the tracks, helping Bromwin, uh, uh, throughout the process, it was just, it was, it was so cool to have that sort of like realization uh, during. Wonderful. Yeah, active listening, man. Ooh, it's hard. It requires a, a huge amount of energy. I, um, I did a, uh, was in Japan doing a trio of Shakespeare plays and we we were doing original rehearsal practice so we only had like a day and a half to put them together I have never listened with more desperation <laughs> in my life because I was like I actually don't know what scene is coming next because we haven't like rehearsed it for five weeks or whatever you know it was like we maybe ran this once and like what's coming next but it definitely that process has been really fun to kind of integrate into this I know that you had a much more complicated logistics wise um, for this, but just that this idea of sort of <laughs> maybe not desperate listening, but like really active listening and responding. <laughs> I would say what I did for five months was desperate listening. Desperate listening. Um, I, I, would I would definitely categorize it as that. And just like going to bed and just hearing everyone's like disembodied voices, just like floating around and being like, <laughs> gotta take out that pause and like just worrying because the other part and not to toot my own horn over here, but since this is all recorded over Zoom, you can't even begin to imagine the amount of glitches that I had to Oh, I, work I definitely can. Ariana can imagine. <laughs> None of my actors can. Having now recorded eight projects, I definitely yeah. can. <laughs> Everything you hear, I constructed from scratch. You, like, it was great. Like, Ian would give me eight options, right? And I, and three were usable. And so it's right. just, you know. I like, wondered if like, that was going to be the case. Yeah, it's like sometimes you got to take and you're like, well, my decision is made for me. Um, yeah. And then sometimes you would have, you know, uh, I would take and put together a, a five word sentence from three different takes. And to the point where I was just like, going to like everything was expanded as far as you could. And I'm just like, tediously, I looked like, I don't know if you've seen that meme of Charlie Day from Always Sunny in Philadelphia, like with like the mad in his eyes and he's putting together the crime scene. That was yeah. me, but, but for so long, like on, on everything. And, uh, and luckily I, my actors were so lovely and would you know, I'd be like, I need to re-record something and can you send me audio re reactions and I'm sorry to ask anything else. Can we just do it one more time? And then you'd re-record and it sounded completely different. They were just like in a totally different like sound escape and you're just like, well, suddenly it's just like, there's, a, there's one I'll call out for anyone who listens to the play, but uh, it's Barone's. He was like, and here sit I in the sky. And like, it's just like suddenly just I in the sky is just like very godly. <laughs> and it's, uh, I don't know. It's, you just kind of like, I have to constantly tell myself, like, I hear it. I hear it repeated in my head constantly. 
but everyone else is going to hear it for a second and then the play will just move on and they'll forget they'll forget that it sounded like someone else for a second there and uh yeah anyway it's yes uh intense active listening uh was something i didn't realize i was taking on when i started this project and i would have it no other way i had it was such a joy it was such a joy to and to finish it and come to the end uh i feel like i've birthed a very heavy baby <laughs> you're welcome <laughs> <laughs> someone else say something so that's not the last <laughs> Oh, I was going to say that is like the most amazing way to end. Like, and then I'll just add like a sound effect of like thunk. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's perfect. That's absolutely perfect. Bang right there. Baby drop. <laughs> Roll credit. <laughs> Baby drop. Yeah. If anyone, if anyone does have any, any sort of final thoughts about, about the process besides baby thump, like. <laughs> Not going to top baby thump. <laughs> Okay, this, well, Bronwyn's amazing, and what she's created, I will, I'll, I'll, yeah, I, I just can't believe it, and oh. I'm really, really proud of her and what she's achieved, and um, like the people I've like played it a little bit too, they just are, they can't believe that we're all in different places, and yeah, she's, yeah, she's amazing, incredible, and she deserves all the props for this, yeah. Yay! Agreed. Thank you. Agreed very much. <laughs> oh yeah listening to her uh all her different uh impersonations everybody while recording was so fantastic so good um and it also helped just like building that world for me as an actor it was like oh cool this is what this person i'm like great like let's roll with it so i had put so much time and energy into this project like it's it's beautiful and sound Yes, I think notably my my impressions of everyone will be what lives on. I did my best to balance out, you know, I was like, okay, and this is the energy this I know this person will bring. And this is how they'll probably say it because we did have one big read through, notably missing Barone. Um, <laughs> and uh, luckily, I had a, a lovely actor Reagan Tankersley step in and he did a great job and, uh, and we were missing like one or two others and uh, but yeah, Barone is kind of a huge chunk to miss, but I, I kind of took it, that all into account and luckily my ear kind of works in a certain way. So I kind of knew along the lines where the energy would be and uh, mm. that, yeah, that, that was helpful. That was a helpful thing <laughs> in, uh, to have uh, so that I could kind of do my best to at least imbue the kind of energy that was being brought in that moment so that everyone could kind of like react in a certain way and there were some times where I missed the mark I mean Will who played the king at the end he was way too happy way too happy at the end everyone else is so solemn and he's like well play <laughs> and I was like all right we need to re-record the whole end like the entire end <laughs> uh, but you know it's you don't know until you put it all in the same room and I just have to say I was the luckiest luckiest director in the world to have the group I had um, actors that were so willing to trust me as Ian said, just like give me their takes and, and hope it's going to turn out okay. And I hope I did everyone proud. And I just, I'm so proud to have been part of it and get to have my dream cast. And it's, it's, uh, it's been such an amazing experience and can't wait to do 
another one. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, yeah, I just wanted to to say thank you so much, Bronwyn. I know how much work you put into this. It's just extraordinary achievement. And, uh, you know, it's it's astonishing to me that you weren't all sort of together, that these were all kind of separate sessions, um, because the world you created together is incredibly cohesive. Um, and you were all in the same play, you, you know, which is something that as a sometimes a rather critical audience member, I can go to a play and be like, there were some amazing performances, but they weren't all in the same world, right? Like they were not in the same world. And that could, that's one of my like pet peeves sometimes is like, I, there were brilliant performances, but they weren't listening to each other. And I really, I, I was absolutely astonished that you all were not truly listening to each other because there is a cohesiveness to to the production and to the recording that is just really, really notable. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I, yeah, thank you all so much for your work. We we hope that you will, if you're interested in this kind of work, like we hope you'll you'll join us for a few more fun, intense projects. <laughs> so thank you all and and thump <laughs> you know like i don't know how else to end thump <laughs>